This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamec.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. Our scripture that was previously read came from the gospel according to Dr. Luke, the 24th chapter, and the reading commenced from the 13th through to the 19th verses. Reading again, just for emphasis, we find these words recorded. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. I'll stop there. Last week, I spoke a message titled, The What If World. In that message, I made the point that every day you and I make choices that while they may appear and feel appropriate at the time, they can sometimes lead to disastrous outcomes. And when these outcomes happen, our lives can become empty and dead because in a word, we get plagued with regret. I also shared that quite often we fail to realize that tomorrow's regret is actually being decided right now. And if we are not careful, it can cause us to live in a perpetual state in the past, or in other words, living in the what-if world. What if I had finished school? What if I had not wasted time on that relationship? What if, what if, what if, etc. The list goes on and on and on. But as paralyzing as living in the past and in the what-if world can be, it can also be paralyzing to live in our present and miss what might be standing right in the midst of us. It is for this reason I'll be continuing last week's message with a sermon I've titled today called The What Now World. The What Now World. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, this world needs fixing right now. We need fixing right now. So, Spirit of the living God, invoke now your spirit in this body of flesh, in this body of clay. Spirit of the living God, make this flesh come alive now. Use my words, my thoughts, my intellect, my feelings, my emotions, everything that I bring, Lord, my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to a holy God. Use me now for your glory. Spirit of the living God, breathe on this message, breathe on this preacher, and let us both live. This world need fixing right now. This we pray in Jesus' holy name. In the church all over the world, we say amen, amen, and amen. Last week, I stated a truth, and the truth was, you cannot change yesterday. Let me say that again. You cannot change yesterday. And while it may seem like a no-brainer to you, it is something that many people who are stuck in the past have a hard time believing. 
It is this difficulty with letting go of the past that has created a whole medical discipline called psychiatry, which takes a look at past traumas that have so impacted the psychological and emotional state of people, people whose present lives and realities are being dictated and determined by what happened yesterday. Beloved, this is not a small thing that I'm talking to you about this morning. Trauma, especially from childhood, are real, and they have real-life impacts and implications. Now, before we can even begin to talk about trauma, let me make a few connections for you. Now, I will be honest. This might get a little heavy, but I need you to stay with me as I walk you through this. Before a baby is born, its relationship with its mother is one of complete connectedness and dependence. Physically connected through the umbilical cord and dependent on the mother for food and nourishment. The term for this kind of care is called symbiosis. Now when the child is born, it experiences its first bout of separation and so it cries. And in the first few months, it continues to experience a dependence on others to supply everything that it needs for free. Nurture, mobility, protection, warmth, and indeed life itself is provided for that child by others. The next level of experience for the child is called social symbiosis. That's what this next level is called. And as far as the child is concerned, all of its experiences reinforces the impression that this is its own world. Now as adults... You and I see the externals of material things. But to that child, nothing really exists other than itself. This is why when we think of children, we often think of them as utterly selfish, which they naturally are. And why? Because the truth is, what else could they possibly know since birth? They have no way of distinguishing the boundary between the self and the not-self. Now at some point... Usually about three months, the child begins to see things differently. And another process of separation starts. They experience loss with things like, when I cry, my mother does not come. Or even if she does come, she does not do what I expect. The child is beginning to understand a little bit now about loss. This is why saying no to children helps them gain psychological confidence. But the child also begins to objectify things as it grows. And it begins now to distinguish not just between the me and the not me. They now start to distinguish between the mine and the not mine. They've begun to objectify things. And they're making that distinction not just between the me and not me, but the mine and the not mine. As we grow, every experience of loss triggers for us a momentary preoccupation with the self. And for children, this is necessary for their psychological survival. If the loss, however, is significant, our need for sustenance and protection rises sharply. And if left unsatisfied, our grief returns to that early infant selfishness to the point where it becomes noticeable by other people, and to which we often condemn 
especially when we see that kind of selfish behavior in adults. Am I talking to anyone yet? The development of a healthy sense of self depends on having an internal world of reliable images to which we are attached. I'll say that again. The development of a healthy sense of self depends on having an internal world of reliable images to which we are attached. This is what I have called the what now world. The what now world is an existence where you're able to be so present that you're able to reflect on healthy, reliable images that do not cause you to be distracted by the what if or the what next worlds. It's about seeing what is and knowing what things. Let us now turn to our text in Luke. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. A few things to note here, brothers and sisters. After the death of Jesus, the Christian community suddenly had to face a new reality. The life they had become accustomed to had already been turned upside down when Jesus walked with them and performed all the miracles that he did. At the onset, it shook them because they had never seen anything like the things that Jesus had done before. Their view of the world up to that point had undergone a radical shift through the visible manifestations of power demonstrated by and through the person of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, to make it plain, they were forming a new attachment to this great man that they had never seen do the things he had ever done before. But despite all the great demonstrations and miracles, the disciples ended up watching their hero, their reliable source, become ridiculed, beaten, crucified, yes, killed and subsequently buried and placed in a tomb. Nothing could be more devastating to these disciples who thought Jesus was going to be their great liberator. As the text says, the prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. What then should they make of this. After all, they left homes, they left their families, they left their jobs to follow this man. What are they to make of this loss? This is significant. How are they to respond? Well, they were disappointed, heartbroken, fearful, lost, discouraged, devastated, hopeless, and to make it quite plain, Jesus, the object of their devotion, had now been detached from them, and they had lost their healthy identity and their sense of self. Recall what I told you. The development of a healthy sense of self depends on having an internal world of reliable images to which we are 
attached. So the disciples had suffered a significant loss and their need for sustenance and protection had risen sharply. And if left unsatisfied, their grief would return to that early infant selfishness to the point where it would become noticeable by other people and to which others would be all too willing to condemn, especially when they see this kind of behavior in adults who were made famous by cleansing lepers, healing the sick, casting out demons, and even raising the dead. And Luke tells us that their grief was noticeable. Look at the B part of verse 7. They stood still, their faces downcast. So what we have here are two disciples walking along this road to a place called Emmaus. Now, no one in the scholarly community knows where this place Emmaus is. And so it is often symbolized as a no man's land or a place of despair. Now, now Jerusalem is a city on a hill, and its name literally means city or place of peace. And so to be going from Jerusalem to Emmaus, symbolically, is to be going from a high place of peace to a low place of despair. And it's a seven-mile journey. The text is describing for us the, the, the process of despair. And to be despairing is to show loss of all hope and discontinuity of life. Things were going well one day, and now they are not. Have you ever been to Emmaus, the place of despair? Have you ever been there? These disciples knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, loved Jesus. He was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And now he's laying in a tomb, gone, moving from peace to despair. Have you ever been in the city of Emmaus? The presence in our minds of consistent, reliable images or significant figures from the past creates for us a hedge of protection against discontinuity. I'm talking psychological things now. Our images of the world around us are an important defense against feelings of complete discontinuity and despair. These disciples were dealing with a major loss because Jesus had uprooted everything they knew and he was their ultimate positive image and now he is gone. And like many of us, we are walking the seven-mile road on our way to Emmaus. For you and I, traumatic loss upsets the illusion that we live in an orderly world. And while all our losses may or may not be comparable, they are no less significant. We have suffered material losses, relationship losses, functional losses, role and role model losses, systemic societal losses. And while we may not readily admit it, our sense of self may have even reverted to infantile levels that have now evolved into shame. You have been on the road to Emmaus ever since you lost your job, your career, your house, your car, your spouse, your children, your health, your livelihood, your innocence, your identity, your dignity, your pride, and in the saddest of cases, maybe even your faith. And while all of these are painful in their own way, there, there is even loss that you are anticipating, and it's keeping you on the seven-mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. 
And if left unsatisfied, you and me, like the disciples, would be experiencing paralyzing grief. But thankfully, they, like you and me, are not left unsatisfied. Why? Because the text says in verse 15, as they walked, as they talked, and discussed these things with each other. Here it is, church. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. The question then becomes, what keeps them from recognizing him? Quite a number of suggestions have been offered regarding why the disciples did not recognize Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, the blinding effect of Satan probably provides the best explanation. But I like to think that a major reason why they did not recognize him was because they were blinded by their own heartbreak and grief. V very often, a broken heart that has been brought about by the disappointment of loss and grief can blind us to the truth that exists right in the midst of us. Loss of any kind requires a reaffirmation of the self. And as humans, we, we need autonomous, reliable centers and images even in the face of loss. We need to be attached to but not defined by others. This is why we need Jesus. As Jesus converses with the disciples, a nice irony emerges. The disciples point to the apparent ignorance of this stranger who is asking them about Jesus, yet being quite ignorant themselves that they're speaking to Jesus himself. Is it possible, church, in your life, that Jesus himself may be trying to talk to you right now and you don't even recognize him because you're stuck on your seven-mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Verse 17 says, And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus. The Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also, some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him we did not see. This is the beauty of the text, brothers and sisters. As the two of them were walking, they were talking about everything that had happened. The things that had happened was not just the crucifixion of Jesus, but they were also talking about what the women had told them about seeing Christ raised from the dead. In other words, the women were giving a testimony of the resurrection of Christ, and they were talking about it. They didn't understand it, but they were talking about Jesus. They were talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and because they were talking about the resurrection of Jesus, which was a real present reality, they were now ready to enter the what now world. 
The what now world, as I said before, is an existence where you're able to be so present that you're able to reflect on healthy images that do not cause you to be distracted by the what if or the what next worlds. It's about seeing what is and knowing what things. The what now world, brothers and sisters, quite literally, is Jesus in the midst of us. For, for, for me, there is something precious in the picture of Jesus Christ walking with us in our darkest hour. So often as fleshly humans, we desire an answer when God's desire is that we recognize that we already have the answer in him. He knows what is required for each of us to reach the place of joy and peace in him. Here we have in this Emmaus account two that are gathered, and there he is in the midst. <laughs> now let me say this. You may be going through a difficult time right now. Maybe you're dealing with the loss of a loved one or the loss of your employment or dealing with some major back tax issues or some health issue with you or a loved one that has caused you to lose your peace. Maybe that's what's going on in your world. Well, the truth is, the only way you can get back to the place of peace is with the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that he has set up this help is through fellowship in his believing community called the church. As you walk on your Emmaus road, you need not walk alone. You need to be walking alongside others who are also believers that can identify with your struggle and be there with you. You need not walk alone. As you come together in the common name of Jesus, he will come alongside you and be right there with you in the midst of your hardship and pain. This is why the word says he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He will never leave you nor forsake you. His sheep hears his voice and he knows them and they follow him. The point here is that the disciples have an opportunity of seeing and experiencing Jesus, but they could not recognize him. You see, they knew him before he was crucified. They had seen him. They had spent finite time and space with him. They had many experiences with him, so they knew him. But now, because of their heartbreak and their grief, they did not know him in his glorified and resurrected state. Brothers and sisters, what am I saying? They did not know him as God. This is what they needed, and this is what you need as well. You need to see and know Jesus as God so that you can walk with him in the what now world. The what now world is a recognition that you are part of something so much greater than yourselves. The what now world is you, you, your very existence transcends all material, relational, psychological, or emotional loss. Your destiny, while it's impacted by your past, is not defined nor determined by it. And while you still need time to heal, you will heal. But Jesus teaches us so much more than that. Look with me at verse 25. He says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said 
in all the scriptures concerning himself. The disciples entered the what now world because they discussed the resurrection. Jesus came alongside them and by explaining the meaning of the scriptures and the necessity of the sufferings as it pertains to his glory, he helped them gain emotional release from what they had lost, watch this, by making it a memory. Many of us are stuck in replaying the moment of death or in recreating our last significant encounters with loss. Most of us are stuck in an unrealistic insistence of the perfection of what was. And all of us are stuck in selective remembering, which interferes with the possibility of the kind of forgiveness that will bring healing to our souls. But the what now world is understanding. And if you get nothing else out of this message, get this right now. The what now world is the understanding that the cross was, but the resurrection is. I don't know if you got that in your spirits. The what now world is a recognition that the cross was, but the resurrection is. And when any memory leads to thanksgiving, then those memories become cherished and you are able to move on. Turn your memories into opportunities where you can recognize the growth in you, leave it as a memory, cherish it as what it was, but celebrate what you now are and what you have become. The cross was, the pain was, the disappointment was, but my life is. Greater is he that is in me. I can do all things. The cross was. The resurrection is. The cross, when properly understood, is not that Jesus died, but that he overcame death and the loss of his earthly life could not stop him from accomplishing his glory. This is why when we speak of Jesus, we must talk in the present tense. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. This is the what now world. It is literally Jesus in the midst of all of our losses, all of our griefs. It's Jesus being about his father's business. It's Jesus who will never leave you and never forsake you. It's Jesus, a very present help in time of need. And it's Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us right now. It's Jesus, our reliable source and the object of our devotion. And to all who will call upon his name, he is here. So I'll close with this because I want you to understand the what now world. Imagine you're on a high cliff, you lost your footing and you begin to fall. 
But just beside you as you are falling is a branch sticking out from the edge of the cliff. It is your only hope. And it is more than strong enough to support your weight. But if you're wondering, what if I didn't fall? You're stuck in a pass that can't save you. And if your mind is filled with the intellectual certainty that the branch might be able to support me, but I don't actually reach out and grab it, you're still lost. However, if your mind is filled with doubts and uncertainty, where you don't even understand whether or not the branch can help you or not. You don't understand how all of this works. All you know is that you're falling and you're on your way from Jerusalem to despair. You're on your way. You don't even know if that branch can help you, but you still act in faith and reach out and grab it. Anyway, you will be saved. It is not the strength, brothers and sisters, of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is spiritually inferior to very weak faith in a strong branch. This is why if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to these mountains, be thou cast and be removed into the sea. The point is, you don't got to get it all right. You don't have to have it all figured out. Those disciples were talking to Jesus about Jesus. They didn't know what was going on. All they knew was that they were stuck in their despair. Stuck in their heartbroken self. And Jesus said, what things? Listen, he has come that we may have life and have it more abundantly. That's what his word says. How he does it, I don't know. I have no clue. But what I do know is that once I was lost, but now I am found. Once I was broken and grieving, but now I have abundant life. I don't understand how it works. I just know that it does. This means that you don't have to wait for all your doubts and fears to go away before you take hold of Christ. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you have to have it all together or you need to get yourself just right in order to meet God. It is not the depth and purity of your heart, but the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf that saves you. So... If you're willing to take hold of that branch today, then welcome to the what now world. The world where Jesus is in the midst, a very present help in time of trouble. And no matter what you may be grieving today, no matter what you may be pining over that you have lost, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one can come to the Father except through him. The what now world is Jesus walking with you right now, talking with you along life's narrow way. He walks with me and he talks with me. And you ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. How's your heart today? May the Lord richly Richly bless you, my beloved.